Okay, open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of uh, Jeremiah, the book of the prophet Jeremiah. That's going to be Jeremiah chapter 17. That's going to be on page 546. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided, again, middle, end of these aisles, chair pockets, you can grab a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, please take a Bible. Take that, take it home with you. That can be our gift to you this morning. Understanding animal behavior is usually something that's very predictable, but for certain creatures... Understanding them is a major challenge. In fact, did you know that all cows everywhere simultaneously face either north or south when eating? Cows across the world. Some scientists uh, got together. They looked on images of Google Earth, time-stamped. It's the only way they were able to figure this out. But they were faced in the same direction at the same time, but only while eating. It has something to do with their ability to detect the Earth's magnetic fields in relationship to magnetic north. But even if that's true, why the heck bother with letting it affect how you eat, right? As human beings, we know food is food. We'll take it wherever we can get it, however we can get it, in whatever direction we find it. So why do they care? No one knows for sure because you can't get into the mind of a cow and understand. Or take ants, individually very dumb creatures. But they can collectively organize and build virtual underground cities in such a unified fashion, it's like one architect designed it and executed it. A swarm theory here helps us understand that they communicate, but it doesn't help us understand how they do so in a way where one ant who begins that telephone-like, remember that game telephone, communication, can act at one time while the same ant Yards, meters away, can understand the same thing and build towards the same end until it comes together and forms this unified structure. How does that work? Nobody knows. We can't get into the mind of an ant to understand. Or what about blue whales? Blue whales. People love whale voices, so much so that they actually listen to whale songs even while they go to bed at night. Right? And they listen to this. But did you know that a blue whale's voice gets deeper every year. It makes itself go deeper every year, and that apparently has nothing to do with like whale puberty or anything like that. No one understands why. And yet each year, they sound more and more like Barry White. All right, and, and just their soundtrack of life. Love is in the air, right? They sing that way. No one can understand why. Animals, of course, they, they lack the moral judgment to know you know, that how question, certainly they lack the self-awareness to assess why they do what they do. But thankfully, humans were different, right? Right? Well, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah paints for us a very different conclusion about self-awareness. Back among the prophets, you would agree if you read Jeremiah, that among the prophets, he draws the short straw of all the, all the missions in life. God tells him pretty much right away, Jeremiah, no one in Judah, pretty much no one in Judah is going to listen to your message. Now the good news is, he says, I will make you like a bronze wall. Others will be very strong. Whereas the bad news is, he gets thrown into a pit and left without food for days. All right, so there's mostly minuses to his calling. He, he's the prophet that every preaching pastor reminds himself of when people don't respond to a faithful message. Or like, at least there's Jeremiah. We remember him. And in part, people don't respond 
Because God, through Jeremiah, is full of warnings. Jeremiah has lived through one good. He lives through one good, one below average, and one really awful, wicked king. And he, he lives through different kinds of kings to know that many of these warnings that God posts in bold colors, like, like traffic signs, apply to all people of every generation, regardless if that generation is a godly generation or a wicked generation. All people need this warning. And he sees that through his history and through various kings. One such warning contains the most illuminating insights I've ever read about the human heart. And that's what we're going to read this morning. In fact, our passage this morning literally asks the question, who can understand the heart? Why is it that what we most despise in other people is the very thing that is one of our character traits, one of our most prominent character traits, and yet we can't see it in ourselves? Why is it that time really doesn't heal all wounds like we're told it will? Why do I keep going back to the same superficial attractions, even though it disappoints me and fails to satisfy me every time? Why do I keep doing that? Well, the heart isn't as simple as we might think it is. So, who can understand the heart? God answers his own question by stating, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the insides. So let's look to God. He can help us understand this morning the condition of the heart, the cause of the heart, the consequences of the heart, and the cure for the heart. And you'll see that in your outline on the back of the bulletin if you want to follow along. Condition of the heart, cause of the heart, the consequences of the heart, and finally the cure for the heart. So let's look to him first, if we would, together in prayer. Let's pray together. God, we come to you, and I I want to confess for myself and maybe for many of us that we are not necessarily great at heeding warnings. Warnings that you send into our lives, especially when those warnings don't suit our life trajectory. When those warnings don't necessarily jive with what we want to hear about ourselves. But we ask this morning, God, that you would break through. Holy Spirit, that you would penetrate into our hearts. We, we, we pray with Augustine, Lord, deliver me from this lust of always vindicating myself. Help us put our guards down this morning and trust that you have the very best words for our good this morning. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Let's read together Jeremiah start, chapter 17, starting in verse 1. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars, while the children remember their altars and their asherim. Beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains in the open country, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert 
and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. This is God's word. So let's talk first about the condition of the heart, because this is what we see here in the guts of this passage, the condition of the heart left to itself. Now today, we speak about sort of the the figurative heart, right? The, The heart as the figurative center of feeling and emotion. And so we talk about having heart, or having a heart, or we talk about when the heart leaps, when the heart feels good about something. That's how we think about it. But how does the Bible characterize the heart? Let's think about that for a moment. Well, the heart in Hebrew, lab, the heart in Hebrew, thought, is literally the human center. <clears throat> it's the home of feeling, yes, but also willing and thinking. Feelings, will, and mind are all covered by the biblical term heart. So you've heard me call the heart before. If you've been here long enough, you've heard me call the heart the control center of the person. That's how the Bible conceives the heart. It's the control center. It's the place where things happen, where intentions are developed, and eventually actions are done. Sometimes we let our feelings rule in decisions we make. Sometimes it's our thinking, or we, our core beliefs that rule what we will do. Other times, things get out of whack, and it's commitments we have, a commitment we have to someone, and we're going to do something just based on the way we've always done it and who we've done it for. Those three things are always interplaying in the heart. But sometimes one rules more than the other, and it gets out of whack. You can't separate those three. They're thinking, feeling, commitments. They all go together. But the most important declaration we hear in our passage about the heart comes from verse 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things. And that goes very counterculture to what we think about our hearts and how we make decisions in life. The word deceitful here in Hebrew is literally Jacob or Jacob. If that name sounds familiar, it's because it comes from an Old Testament man whose early life was like a parable for a deceived heart. So for example... Jacob stole what wasn't his because he rationalized, he likely rationalized it as a customary practice for his day. You see that in Genesis 25. He tricked his brother into selling him his birthright, but but evidence suggests that there are all kinds of accounts in the ancient Near East where people took their brother's uh, birthrights, their right as a firstborn child, just by things like selling a sheep or catching them in a bad moment, just like Jacob did. So you can imagine him saying, well, look, this is a common practice that other people do in my day. And he rationalizes it, doesn't he? There's another time when Jacob pretends to be someone else, but he rationalizes it again because it was at the direction of someone I love and respect. Someone I love and expect gave me this advice. This is in Genesis 27. It was his mom of all people 
is mom, right? You never think that from mom. But mom encourages him to put animal hair on his arm. So his blind father thinks he's someone else, thinks it's his brother Esau. But he rationalizes it, right? Well, mom told me to do it. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's for good. Then he rigs his profit margin behind his boss's back. Because he rationalizes, everyone has rights. We see this in Genesis 30. Laban, his father-in-law, stabbed him in the back, financially and otherwise. So Jacob gets revenge by rigging the flock so he'd end up with stronger sheep, stronger profit margins, if you will. But he rationalizes and thinks, you know what? He did it to me. I'll do it back. That's just the way the world works. And so his heart rationalizes. This is what the heart does. It justifies itself. It rationalizes behavior. But he can't see it. We can because we're reading it. We can because we're someone else and not Jacob. But Jacob can't see it. What about us? Can we see our hearts? We, we can't. We, why can't we see this in ourselves? You know, Sigmund, I disagree with a lot of what Sigmund Freud said. And if you ever took a psychology class or know much about Freud. He's, but he was on to something when he separated the mind between the conscious and the unconscious. He was on to something. The Bible affirms that some wrongdoing is more conscious at least. And there's some things that are wrong in our attitudes and our beliefs and our, and our deeds that are less conscious. Now, Jesus highlights this himself in his teaching on judging other people. He asks the question, Matthew chapter 7, verse 3, Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log in your own eye? Because we can't see ourselves clearly, right? We can't see the flaws, the attitudes of our heart very clearly, can we? God answers the question, why, why don't we see it? Because the heart is deceitful above all things. Its chief characteristic tricks us into believing, I'm fine, I don't need help, I don't need someone to pray for me, my circumstances are okay, so I must be okay. My life is good, so I must be good. Everything in here. And that's why David, we see pray in Psalm 139, search me, O God, know my heart, test me and know my thoughts. Because he recognizes he doesn't have the kind of perspective, the kind of self-awareness that sees himself and what's going on inside of him honestly. The worst part of this condition of our hearts is that this deceptive condition appears irreversible. Verse 1 talks about sin being like a, a pin of iron or a point of diamond, which we know to be the strongest of all materials, right? The only thing more permanent than the hardened heart of a human being is the deceitfulness of sin etched onto it. So God says in verse 9, the heart then is desperately sick. Illnesses described with this Hebrew adjective are always chronic illnesses when we read them in the Bible. To be desperately sick is to be chronically sick. It's imagining your doctor opening up the door and introducing you to a hospice care worker and saying there's nothing more that you can do. That's what this verse reads like. This is true of a human heart left to itself. How does a heart get into this place, become so desperately sick, hard, so deceived? Here we get to the cause of the heart. And the cause of the condition of our heart is idolatry. Very simply, idolatry. When you and I hear idol, you might think of a bunch of, of worshipers lying prostrate on the ground to a wooden statue somewhere, right? 
Maybe, maybe somewhere in the Far East or some remote places in the world or something you read about in a history book. And indeed, that's what our text actually first says, Asherim. You hear that term here in our text. These, these were poles or trees of a Canaanite goddess who was also Baal's girlfriend. We talked about Baal a few weeks ago. Her worshipers are literally then, are actually literally tree huggers. They go to the tree, they worship the tree, they love the tree. True ancient day tree huggers. But instead of their affection being directed at Yahweh, it's misdirected towards an idol. They go to worship at a different altar. Their altars, we're told here in our text. Notice, it even says here at the end of uh, verse 2, the horns of their altars. The idolatry took place at the horns of their altars. Now horns, you see this phrase a bunch in the Old Testament. What does that mean? Like literally the horns of a bull? Like, was there an animal at the altar? What's going on here? Well, the horns represented strength. They, they were literally the joints that held together the corners of an altar. And they happened to have this little thing that stuck out that looked like horns. And they literally held together the altar, altar and thus hold everything together about worship. And that's essentially what an idol is. Whatever you seek out for strength and to hold your life together. That is a functional God in your life. Whatever you seek out for strength to hold your life together, that's your horn, that's your idol. Most surveyed would say, what, what holds my life together? Most people would say, God. However, we have to keep remembering this guiding principle, right? The heart is deceitful above all things. So we say, oh, it's God. It's, it's Yahweh, it's Jesus. But our heart may say something different. Two little diagnostic questions that can help us detect what's really holding our lives together, what's really the strength of our lives. Here's two questions you can ask yourself. What would ruin me if removed? What would utterly ruin me if removed from my life? And what do I think most about while I'm driving in my car? Those two things can help you get at what you really find strength from in life, what really holds your life together. The first one, Right, what would ruin my life if it was taken from me, whether it be my reputation, my career, my sense of control, my wealth and sense of financial freedom that I have because of it, it would ruin me if it was just taken, just stripped from me. That's a good chance then that is the functional God of your life. The second question, what would I think about when I'm in my car, is, is gets to that less conscious part of us. What do, you, what do you daydream about in the car? What do you let your mind wander to or worry about when you're in the car? What's the first thing you're going to switch to when you leave here today? Think about that later. What does your mind naturally want? Now you're going to be at home like, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Think about Jesus, right? But, but what? Just be real. Where does it go to? That's probably the location of the functional God of your life. Jeremiah gives a practical example of such a functional God in verses 5 and 6. Read that again with me if you would. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who, tr- uh, who trusts in man, who makes flesh his strength whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert. For many of us, people are our functional gods, our idols. We, 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 we get strong. We think to ourselves, I'm gonna, I get stronger when I'm around that person. Or I'll get strength from another person's approval of me in life. Or I will be a strong savior for that person. I will be their strength. And so people serve as our functional gods. And we think that's where I'll give strength or it's where I'll get strength from. For many of us, people have become big and God has become small. 
And yet, we don't necessarily see that. We just see it as friendships, as relationships, as, as just goodness. But there's a subtle deception. Do I seek strength from it? Do I seek life from it? Do I trust other people to help hold my life together, really? It's interesting, John Calvin in his commentary noted that the shrub in verse 6 is not simply dead, but it gives the appearance of life. That's what a shrub does. But it doesn't notice it's in the middle of a desert. It thinks it's alive. Calvin would say that we may feel like we're more alive when we're surrounding ourselves with other people, with the right person, but really we're alone. We're lonely amongst others. And deep down, there's no real root system so that our sense of identity just sort of frets about in the wind, almost like a tumbleweed, from person to person, from identity to identity, from group to group. There's no rootedness. Now, as you hear all this, and maybe you come regularly on Sunday mornings, you might think, man, man sunrise, you guys, you talk a lot about sin. <laughs> you talk a lot about, well, more accurately, when you talk about the Bible, God seems to talk a lot about sin and warnings and this sort of thing. And it's a real downer, but it's because of verse 9. Again, it's because the heart is deceitful above all things. We think we're good. We think we're okay because life is okay because things are going well. But if we don't wake up to the real strength of our hearts, what really holds our life together, and the degree to which an idol's vice grip deceases into thinking everything's going to be okay, God says there's going to be consequences That's part three here then. Consequences like loss, slavery, and even eternal fire we see in our passage. Look at that in verse four. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage. The heritage I gave to you. There's loss. God has given us a heritage called life. He's given it to all of us. And it works to the degree that we glorify God with our lives. That's how he meant for us to live it. But a deceptive heart tricks us into thinking our idols can satisfy and strengthen us. These functional gods we depend on can really satisfy, strengthen us, hold our lives together. So we keep going back to that idol until it fails us again. But we go back to the the same one. It fails us again. It frustrates us. It angers us. We go to maybe another idol. It fails us again until our strength has left us and our grip loosens on the life God has given us literally loosens. You just sort of let go. You may not literally let go of your life, but your will has died. Prior to coming to Grand Cayman, I used to believe that impacting people for God's kingdom, impacting people would satisfy and fulfill me. Even good pursuits, by the way, like a life of ministering the good news to others, those things can become an idol. I would say yes to every invitation I had to speak. I recall once heading out the door to speak at a a Florida State University campus crusade event, and Katie was begging me not to go. Don't go, don't go. But I went. Why did I go? Because that's where my idol was. That's where my God was. I I felt like I would get strength and satisfaction if people's lives were changed. It would be such a rush. But oftentimes people's lives weren't changed. Sometimes you witness the impact. Other times... Nothing there. I began to grow listless and despondent. Why aren't people changing? Why did I grow despondent? Because my functional God stopped working. I was losing my will to live. I wasn't suicidal. I was just losing that will. And then I literally lost my voice. 
in case I didn't get the message, I feel like God took away my voice. He did take away my voice for days at a time. I had to go to a speech therapist to get it back. And God used that. There's a real loss that can happen when your heart gets strength from other gods. There's also slavery happens. Look at verse 4. He talks about serving enemies in a land you do not know. For, for Judah, this meant literal slavery in the land of Babylon. Soon, we were soon going to exile God's people. But for us, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6, he talks about spiritual slavery. We think we're free because we do what we want. But then we begin to serve what we want, what we worship, the idol from which we draw strength and satisfaction. We begin to make more room in our schedules for it. We cut corners and cut out other people for our lives. We start to even change as people to serve our, we call it, passion in life. We might even switch jobs or move away because of it. All the while, we may wistfully call this following our passion, following our heart, forgetting that first of all our hearts are what? Deceived above all things, right? And the final consequence to the heart that remains as is is eternal fire. In my anger, this is God speaking, in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. The scriptures, guys, yes, even Jesus, in fact, especially Jesus, more than anyone, warns us that if we live a life just following our hearts, trusting what my heart says, going with feelings, and that is our functional God, then there will be hell to pay. But thankfully, Thankfully, there is a cure for the heart. Read with me again, verses 7 and 8. Here is some good news. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green. It's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. There in verses 7 and 8. The cure for your heart is trust. Trust. It's interesting that God puts this two ways, doesn't he, in verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, in Yahweh, trusts in his character, trusts in his person, trusts in his deeds on our behalf. But the second little line there does, takes it a step further. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Blessed is the man whose trust is the Lord. Our very trust is the Lord. The picture here is of someone who doesn't just believe in God, but whose life is tied to the person of God. If you ever lived in the Toronto area or in the New York area in the late 19th century, any volunteers here? Probably showing your age and the fact that you may be a vampire. But um, if you lived in Toronto or New York area in the 19th century, at some point you likely would have traveled to Niagara Falls, not just to see the beauty, but to witness the daredevilry. High wire acts across the Niagara Falls gorge were all the rage in the late 19th century. It was like a big deal. This is kind of where this phenomenon of daredevil even came from. They would flock by the thousands. In fact, for one performance of someone crossing Niagara Gorge on on a high wire, there's 25,000 people came out to see it. They would watch, even pay to watch someone risk their lives on a wire about three-quarter of an inches, three-quarter of an inch wide. Years ago, I was listening to this history of, of these Niagara high wire acts, and one gentleman in particular, in particular encouraged audience participation. 
So he would walk across the line to, to wild applause and enthusiasm from everyone. They would get all excited. And next time, he would, he would push a wheelbarrow across. People would get even more excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whoa, they couldn't get enough. He'd go back and forth. We love it. We love it. Then he would ask for a volunteer. Who will go with me this time? He would ask. You believe I can do it. I, I will actually tie you to me. And we'll walk across together. I will not let you fall. You've seen it. You believed it. Tie yourself to me. Let's go together. And the crowd would fall silent. (laughs) Just a hush. A deadly almost hush. Why? Because it got personal. In fact, only one person in this guy's whole act that went on for years ever volunteered to be tied. Go with him. But I believe, I think, guys, it's this, this... stuck with me as a poignant image of what it means to trust Jesus, to make Jesus your trust. If you're here this morning, or or you're listening to this later, there's a pretty good chance that you believe in Jesus. You believe in his life, that he healed the sick, that he taught these radically upside-down concepts that changed the world, like that in order to live, you have to die. If you die to self, you can actually live and find real life that he was tender with the outcast, that he really did forgive his enemies, people who just direly hated him. You believe that he died on a cross. You, you mentally believe that he even rose from the dead, and you're in awe of what he did. You're amazed at his story, that this, this new radical way of living, thousands of feet above normal terrestrial life. And it's breathtaking to behold Jesus. Then he asks you to climb up to him. And tie your life to his. Now it's gotten personal, hasn't it? You can no longer stay a spectator with Jesus Christ. Even when it seems like everyone else is staying put on the ground. To to follow Jesus, you must climb up to him and tie your life to his. This is what it means. This is what it looks like to travel from belief to trust which is what God requires for us to know him forever, to have a new heart. Not that it's not initially nerve-wracking. The first time and every time you climb up that high wire, up on that high wire to be with Jesus. With the radical life to which Jesus calls it, it feels like you are up a thousand feet. And there's like no way you won't fall. That's what it often feels like, walking with Jesus, walking as he did. Trusting your entire life to him. It's what it feels like when you join a community group for the first time. And while at the community group, you pray for the first time in your life. And scary. When he gives you an opportunity to pray for the sick, that their fever may break, that their back might be healed, that their cancer may be removed. But we think, but what if God doesn't hear me and answer my prayer? And you're walking that wire. When a door opens to share your life has changed because of Jesus. And you start to open your mouth towards that friend or coworker, and you just don't know how they're going to respond. You think in the past, they're so indifferent, even hostile towards religion or Christianity or spirituality. It could be nerve-wracking. Or re- reaching out to give of myself to those considered least in society because it eats into my work schedule and it drains me of all my energy I mean, will God really provide if I give that part of my life to him? If I give my life to him, will he come through? 
It is a high-wire act, and yet I want to share with you from the Scriptures, from 2,000 years of testimony in the church and the kingdom of God, from my life, that everything Jesus first lived and then promised to us is true. It is true and trustworthy. He always gives his presence, his power, his provision when walking that high wire with him. Always. He promises that if you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Which fulfills what our passage says right in in verse 8. Such a person is who trusts in Jesus, who trusts God, who, who is in Christ. He's like a tree planted by the water, sends out its roots by the streams. He doesn't fear when the heat comes. Its leaves remain green. He's not anxious in the year of drought. Such a person does not cease to bear fruit. As Jesus can cure your hearts and help us not only see life as he created it to be lived, but live the life as he created it to be lived, as we tie ourselves to him. And the greatest news of all, when your foot does slip, or you wander off that wire, he will never let you go. Let's pray together. Jesus, I hope we have seen this morning and believe this morning the truth about our hearts, that our hearts are deceived above all things. If there's one thing true about our hearts as they are, at the hearts that we were born with, is that we're deceived, is that we can't see ourselves clearly. We can't see our functional gods that we worship, that we draw strength from, that we, the way we think about them is if I don't have them, my life will fall apart. God, open the eyes, open our eyes to what those things are, but not just for the sake of, of seeing ways we strayed from you in our lives, for the sake of climbing up to you on that high wire and trusting, Jesus, that you have a better life for us, trusting that in you we can have a new heart and see our lives finally, clearly, and see ourselves on the inside for what's really going on there, for what's really true. Jesus, even as I pray this, I feel nervous. I feel nervous climbing up to you, living such a radical life that you've called me to, a radical life that you lived. But we know that you will lead us and never let us go as we tie our lives and trust you. Please help us do that this morning. In your name, amen.